chapter 3 open. That's the part of God's word we're going to be looking at more closely this morning. Uh, well done for making it out on this strange kick back to winter. Um, and if you're feeling a little chilly, we don't have the heating on, so just snuggle closer to the people near you. Uh, we, we prayed earlier, uh, and when we did pray, what we prayed was, I suppose, words with meaning. Uh, because Christian prayer uh, is not about chanting. Christian prayer is expressing relationship. So when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he didn't give his disciples magic words. He didn't give them a mantra to be repeated mindlessly. Instead, what he did was give a model that summarised what matters in life. So they came to him and they wanted to know how they could pray in a considered way. Not just spur of the moment, but how they might consider, how they might pray in such a way that reflects what really matters when they speak to their Heavenly Father. And so Jesus taught them, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, at least a little, uh, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and, and so on. When Jesus modelled prayer to them, he focuses on the honouring of God. Uh, the hallowing of his name is what matters of most importance, as first importance, as top priority. And I suspect if you've been around church for a little while and maybe a long while, you've prayed that prayer a lot of times. But perhaps you've wondered what it actually looks like to hallow or or to honour God's name. What's it look like to honour his word? We use words like hallowing and honouring and they seem perhaps distant from the everyday activities of eating, sleeping, working, uh, but we know it's got to mean something more than just we, what we do on Sunday morning for a few hours. What does it actually look like for us to honour God day by day, day in, day out in ordinary life? That kind of concern um, just permeates chapter 3, the, the end of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So what Paul does is he's, he grounds the honouring of God's word into the reality of everyday life. Uh, We've got to remember that when Paul was writing, first of all, he wasn't writing uh, a theological structured argument. He was writing a letter to friends. So when he gets to 3 verse 1 and says, finally, he's not coming to a conclusion of an essay. It's just like a normal letter to friends. He's flowing and it's what flows in his mind freely and what he wants to share with them. Uh, And you can see that that what concerns, uh, the concerns that, that were raised in Jesus' model for prayer dominate the way Paul thinks. And what he wants to share with his friends is reflected there, that Paul touches on what it is to honour God. Uh, First of all, in the first couple of verses, by by honouring God in the world, uh, and then by honouring God in the lives, the everyday lives of Christians. Uh, Let's have a look at those opening few verses. Uh, Verses 1 to 3, Paul's concern for for the word of God to be honoured in the world. Finally, brothers, he says in verse 1, pray for us that the message or the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. See, God is not just the God of people who believe in him. God made the world by his powerful word and and all people actually come from his command. And God created the world to be saved or he made the world to be saved, created the way of being saved again by his word, a powerful word. 
The word, we're told in John, became flesh, lived among us, died and rose. And so it's right that everybody should honour the word of God, all people across the world. And so now rather than Paul saying, I'm praying for you Thessalonians, he says, will you please pray for me? Um, Yeah, pray for me and and, uh, for Silas and for Timothy, but more than that, pray for our work of seeing the word get spread. Spread rapidly, uh, the expression is to run. May the word, uh, may word of the Lord, the message of the Lord, run and be honoured, just in the way it was amongst the Thessalonians. So he reminds them that they responded in faith, but in verse 2, not all are faithful. And so the, the word of God, the words that bring life to people, are not going to spread without opposition. It shouldn't worry us though, because in verse 3, uh, the faithful God can deal with any kind of opposition that comes up, can't he? Even the evil one can't overcome God's people. See, what does it look like to honour God's word? In part, it's calling others to join with you in honouring it. Amanda Vanstone, if you know her name, former Liberal Senator, current Ambassador to Italy, sounds like a great job. Um, she wrote an article, Fair Go, The Ultimate Value. Very Oz, isn't it? Uh, She wrote that uh, although religion is not taboo, it's a private matter. And to quote her, she said, Australians are generally highly apprehensive when some politicians believe their own set of values makes them somehow morally superior on a particular issue and that this therefore gives them the right to legislate according to to those views. Um, She goes on, uh, her point was that politicians' belief... uh, when it's connected to a belief in God or religion, should have no place when it comes to legislation. She doesn't, though, criticise people of you know, a secular philosophical framework for doing the same thing and drawing upon that to legislate. Australia does not honour God's word. Our community standards, our, our workplaces don't see a role for God. It's the individual's word. That gets honoured, at least it's heard, uh, as welcomed, but God's word is not even afforded that. And I suspect that subtle tone in our culture, rather than the threat of pain or persecution that the Thessalonians faced, it's that, that subtlety has a knock-on effect on people like you and me. See, we become content with God's honour being limited to these walls. You know, if we were scared of reputations or what people might do to us, you know, these verses deal with that kind of issue. You know, God will deliver us from the evil men and from the evil one in the sense that they can't take away our eternal riches. Um, you know, they can't take away our faith in God. They can't destroy the soul as well as the body. But that subtle opposition of family and friends often leads Christian people, people like you and me, with a lack of concern for God's honour. Or a thought that his word has no place in other people's lives. Now, Paul says to the Thessalonians, pray. Pray that God's word would run rapidly and be accepted with honour. We'd do well to do the same, wouldn't we? Now, we need to be people who pray that God's word, the message, goes out into the world. Now, pray generally, but pray specifically too. Pray 
pray for Christians we know around the world. And I don't just mean missionaries. We do have a, a board there of missionaries. Go, pray for them, that's good. But more than that, um, you know, our church is one of these churches that's blessed, that's partly our community, by, by lots of expats. People come from other nations, they come and they live amongst us and then after a few months, weeks, years, they return. Uh, pray for those people. Uh, the Giblets, if uh, you've been around for a little while, the Giblets recently went to London. Pray for them, that God would use those people to spread his word and pray locally. You know, pray for your friends, pray for your neighbours by name, pray for your colleagues and then take that step of speaking to them. Uh, Bill Hybels uh, is a Christian author and pastor in America. Uh, he has a helpful book entitled Just Walk Across the Room. Uh, he tells a story that illustrates what the book's all about. Uh, he was having dinner once with a man who'd spent most of his life as a, an African-American Muslim in the south, uh, the, the southern states. Uh, for him, that was a fairly isolating experience, being an African-American uh, Muslim in business circles in the south of the US you know, he'd often go to dinner parties, cocktail parties, work functions and he'd be the bloke in the corner by himself that no one actually wanted to talk to. Uh, one particular work cocktail party, again he was in the corner, just kind of uh, nursing, nursing a water or something. Uh, one particular man across the room noticed him, broke from his conversation, walked over and engaged him, said hello, spoke with him. And they had a great conversation, actually developed into a friendship. And the man who walked across the room was a Christian but he inquired, you know, genuinely inquired about this guy's Muslim faith and he shared it. In turn, over time, he inquired about what this man knew of Jesus. And over time, he placed his trust in Jesus. See, what had started as just a very small step of a Christian man walking across the room and caring enough for a bloke who was on his own and having a desire for God's word to actually be honoured not just by the people who already call themselves Christians, developed into other people coming and honouring. You know, what does it look like to honour God's word when we pray it in the Lord's Prayer? Well, well it starts with an active concern for, for the whole world to join in honouring it. And as the chapter rolls on in, in chapter 3, Paul fleshes out what it's going to look like for Christians to honour God in your daily life. So in verse 5, um, the key is imitation. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Uh, it's hard to tell in verse 5 whether he's speaking about God's love for us or, or our love for God. It's hard to tell whether he's talking about Christ's perseverance, his character of steadfastness or, or our character. And I suspect Paul is writing it ambiguously that it could go both ways because they inform each other. They flow into each other. His hope, his prayer is that, that the Lord will lead the Thessalonians into a love like God loves and lead them into a, a steadfast patience and perseverance in the way that Christ has those characteristics. But honouring is, is, yes, it's copying his character, it's imitation, but to honour God is also obedience, to live it out. And so there's this command language that runs through, like an officer addressing his troops. Um, and it keeps recurring. So in verse 4, continue to do the things we command. In verse 6, we command you. In verse 10, we gave you this rule or command. Uh, in verse 12, such people we command and urge in the Lord. Uh, in verse 14, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction um, or command. You know, Honouring God, imitation but with obedience. And his commands actually reach into the spheres of everyday life. 
Particularly, he picks up the areas of work and church and doing good. Those three areas I want us to to, to focus on and think about and reflect upon. Uh, Sphere one, honouring the word of God in work. So it's tempting, and perhaps you felt it, uh, particularly on a Monday morning, it's tempting to think that work is a necessary evil. Uh, Given uh, findings in a recent report, there was a report done by the Relationship Forum, uh, an unexpected tragedy, uh, which is about the the connection uh, between work practice and family breakdown. Given their kind of findings, you would expect that workaholism, that's the greatest sin. Uh, The the study shows how um, in Australian culture the the work practice has brought longer hours, more work on weekends, uh, weeknights, more shift work and all of this has had a detrimental effect on family life and relationships generally. Workaholism is a dangerous blight. And sometimes we're quick to grumble about work. Um, I suspect, you know, though the current climate, someone told me this week uh, at their, at their uh, company, 25% of workers were laid off in one day. So perhaps we're less quick to grumble at the moment in this economic climate. But work is not a necessary evil. Work is a blessing of God uh, in a fallen world. And work is not a sphere of life where where God is absent if you're a Christian. It's actually an opportunity for you to bring him honour. So in verse 6 and in verse 10, work is compulsory for Christians. It's not a choice. In verse 10, Paul calls on a popular saying, if someone won't eat, sorry, if someone won't work, he shall not eat. We've got to be careful here. This is not about people who are unable to work, but those who are unwilling. The Christian person listens to, to Proverbs 6, which Graham read for us earlier. Yeah, he learns from that smallest bit of creation, the ant, uh, and sees how the ant works. Work is compulsory because it is good. So the ant works because it, it recognises how God has set up the world with work as an essential component. And our work is good because it actually connects us with God's purposes in creation. It gives us the opportunity to use his gifts to serve other people. Uh, Work is good because it guards you from sin. So in verse 11, it's the idler with too much free time who ends up meddling in other people's business. And you know that as well. It's a dangerous thing to have a bit too much time, isn't it? The trouble you get yourself into when there's just too much time. The deeper principle, though, is that work is an act of love. It's done to relieve other people. So in 8 and 9, Paul talks about how he acted among them. He worked when he was with them. Why? So he wouldn't be a burden. Now, because work does bring you personal wealth and because it does bring you personal prestige, I think you and I are tempted to think that work is good because of what it does for us. I don't want to say that's as dangerous a trap as thinking that work is bad. Now, we work because we love other people and we work because we obey God and want to honour him. And the beauty of what, therefore, Paul is saying, that work's not about you, is that it frees you and me from selfishly hanging on to our money. My work is to relieve other people's burdens. And so it's generosity, not being a miser, that flows out of work. 
And also it helpfully pushes us beyond just thinking oh, pay is what work is about. No, no, because work is about relieving people's burdens, uh, about not self-interest, it actually gives esteem and value to, to unpaid charity work, to, to full-time parenting because they are relieving people's burdens. Uh, it means as well though that retirement, if you've been planning your retirement, thinking about it, retirement's not an excuse for 20 or 30 years of self-indulgence because you've misunderstood work then. No, no, it's actually retirement is an opportunity to have more freedom to serve others in bigger ways because uh, if you're fit and healthy, laziness doesn't suddenly become godly because you turn 65. Uh, I've been reading Dickens' Christmas Carol uh, to my son the last few nights. Uh, if you know the story, um, it's, it's appropriate, pull it out again, it's the season to start reading it. Uh, if you know the story, you remember that the very dead Marley uh, appears to his business partner Scrooge. Uh, both men had been great businessmen. Uh, but Marley in death was bound with a massive chain, uh, roaming the world in remorse over opportunities that he'd squandered. Uh, and Dickens has this line, I think, that captures beautifully what work is really about. So Scrooge praises his ghostly partner, you, but you were a great businessman. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again, Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. And Marley had learnt work. Yeah, what he was paid for was just a small part. The real issue was helping others. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could kind of learn that lesson this side of the grave? Now, Paul is not saying here that work is not difficult and it's not hard, it's not cursed, but if you want to honour the word of God in your life, then listen to the command of God and work hard, but don't work for yourself, work for others. The second sphere he touches on of honouring God um, is in church life. So honouring God's word secondly requires taking responsibility in church life for other believers, for the people you're sitting with. So in the Thessalonian situation, there were people who had refused to work. Uh, Paul addresses them directly in verse 12 because of their sinful attitude. But interestingly, he doesn't start with them. Earlier on, he addressed the rest of the church. If we are serious about honouring God then we actually need to take responsibility for each other here and their obedience to God. Uh, the, the sin that's going on there in Thessalonica shows us what, what church discipline should look like. Um, five quick features of church discipline. Um, first is that the discipline is for obstinate disobedience. So in verse 14, um, the sense is carried uh, about the, the one who refuses to obey the instruction. It's not that it was a one-off mistake, it's that it's an ongoing nature. There's a particular issue going on of laziness that had to be dealt with in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter, um, but you notice he's having to deal with it even again the second time round, that they are obstinate. Uh, the second feature, so first is obstinate disobedience is what caused it. The second is um, it's dealt with by social ostracism. It's catchy words, aren't they? Um, in other words, you have nothing to do with them. Verse 14. Uh, you just can't underestimate the value of, of friendship and fellowship. 
You know, calling someone a friend, when you have someone over to your place for a meal, that's a tangible sign. It's a physical sign that says, I approve of you, I like you. It doesn't mean you agree on everything with your friends. You'd know that as you discuss stuff. You don't agree on everything. But, but you're in fellowship. You approve of them. To cut friendship is powerful discipline. To refuse to speak to someone often cuts much deeper than actually speaking harsh words. The third feature is it's the congregation, three, that's better, it's the congregation who are responsible for it. So in verse 6, it's the church, the people, who actually have to enact this discipline. And if anything, I suspect we are probably weakest in that area. Uh, I might be wrong, I might be wrong, but I don't think that the majority of us here believe we are spiritually responsible for many other people here, if any. I suspect we think, you know, it's the job of Paul and Mark. Uh, Perhaps the parish council as well. But you notice Paul doesn't go and address the elders, but all believers. You're all responsible for each other. The fourth feature of this discipline is that he is friendly, not hostile. So in verse 15, you warn him as a brother, not as an enemy. I met recently with a friend who was disciplined, in a way, by his church. Now, it's not a straightforward matter, I'm not going to go into the details, but he did have a point that in his discipline there was no grace at all. There was no love for him, there was no mercy. I want to say that's not good Christian discipline because the last feature is that good Christian discipline is is meant to be constructive. So in verse 14, it's to produce shame in the hope that they're going to turn back. If we want to to honour God's word here in church, then we actually need to know each other's lives. And we need to understand each other's struggles and we need to speak of spiritual things with each other. And we need to be willing to correct each other's behaviour, gently and lovingly. I suspect that's fairly intimidating for most of us because it probably means you're going to have to change your attitude and behaviour. You're going to have to stop coming to church thinking you're not responsible for other people. And you're going to have to invest in people more than just a quick conversation during meet and greet and perhaps over coffee afterwards. connected to to both working hard, taking responsibility for other believers, honouring God's word finally, it requires a tireless commitment to doing good. Robin raised this earlier on with the kids. Um, She destroyed a few reputations very lovingly um, at the same time. Um, But that's the point, isn't it? It, Being committed, if we want to honour God, we need to be committed to, to tirelessly doing good. So in verse 13, as for you brothers, never tire of doing what's right. Uh, Or it might be uh, more helpfully put, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. That's been a major concern of Paul all through this letter. Uh, So in one eleven, Paul prayed that God would fulfil every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. In 2.17, Um, He was concerned and prayed that God might encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good 
deed and word. And now he's more direct with them. Don't go weary in doing good. Uh, no one gave me suggestions last week of a better word than do-gooders, so it may come out again. Um, and as I said last week, doing good is, is actually going to require you accounting for other people and for their design, the way God had made them, their destiny, their future before Jesus and their distinctiveness, that we're all different people. And so depending on who you do good for determines how you do good, what's actually good for them. And if you actually went last week and tried doing some of those things, if you tried doing good for other people, you'd be tired, I reckon. You would be tired. Why is it tiring? Well, because it's actually really hard to be insightful, isn't it? You know, take into account people, you know, yep, God made them a certain way and they've got a certain future and, and this is what they're particularly like. If, it actually means they've got to think and that's tiring. And it's hard to put it into practice, isn't it? I mean, you know, saying, oh, I meant to do my share of the housework is not nearly as tiring as actually doing your share of the housework. And it's hard to be sacrificial, but that's what doing good for someone else will do. It will cost you time, it will cost you money. And it's hard, isn't it, because doing good is actually living out Jesus' command to love your neighbour as yourself. In all honest reflection... Uh, self-reflection, I, I'm committed to doing good for myself. I am. I'm committed to loving me um, insightfully. I, you know, I take into account what I'm like and that's how I love myself. I'm committed to loving me in action. Um, I do things for my benefit. Uh, I'm emotionally concerned for my well-being and I persevere at looking after me. Um, and I'm willing to sacrifice to do good for myself. That's me. And to be honest, I don't limit it to the bare minimum. I don't just do good for myself minimum. I'm fairly extravagant in doing good for myself. Uh, Broadly speaking, to love your neighbour as yourself is to love them with the same kind of commitment and interest that you have in yourself. No wonder Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. But if we are to honour God's word, we mustn't give up. Uh, a fortnight ago, The Good Weekend wrote a story on Catherine Hamlin. We've got uh, copies of a, a semi-autobiography of hers that are around and on sale uh, here at church. For nearly 50 years, uh, Catherine Hamlin has worked in Addis Ababa doing good. Uh, she and her husband established a, a fistula clinic. Um, obstetric fistula destroys women's lives. Uh, so a, an obstructed labour means that um, the child almost always dies and uh, the mother is left with a hole in her bladder that leaks urine and faeces. Uh, and so therefore the women are, are rejected by, often their husbands, rejected by um, their families and society and are reduced to begging. One woman came to Catherine Hamlin's hospital after begging for seven years uh, to get the money for the bus fare. So she spent seven years at the bus station begging to get the money and all the time uh, urine was trickling uncontrollably down her legs. Uh, decade after decade, Catherine Hamlin, uh, a committed Christian, has been doing good and fixing these women's lives. Uh, one woman from Eritrea uh, had been wet for 40 years and she told Catherine, I've been sitting alone for 40 years with no one to talk to and to think I could have been cured and had more children. Uh, Catherine Hamlin is now 84 and has TB, uh, which has prevented her the last couple of years from from doing operations herself. And yet she doesn't stop. 
Uh, the article about her in The Good Weekend finishes with the journalist observing how tired she looked. But when it came time for the Dance of Joy, uh, this particular farewell that's done for cured patients, uh, this 84-year-old woman was dancing harder than anyone. And she was having to exhort young women to not slow down. Do not grow weary of doing good. Now, over the past few weeks, we've looked at this letter, this short letter to Thessalonians. Uh, we called it Doing Good in the Departure Lounge because uh, it's a letter dominated by the fact that Jesus is coming back, but it is anything but you know, pie in the sky when you die. It's a call to honour God in word and action now by spreading his word, calling others to honour him, by, by working rightly, uh, by taking responsibility in church and by just doing good tirelessly. Uh, I suspect it's what Jesus was teaching us to seek when he was teaching his followers to pray. And so I want to invite you now, let's, let's finish by praying the words of the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. We're up on the screen if you don't know them. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.